It is December 8th. I've got my neurocopy. I hope you've got yours. Let's dive into this week's Q&A. So I posted a bunch of stuff up on YouTube this week. So if you haven't checked out last week's Q&A, that's up there. Podcast number five with Mike Robertson and I, the iFast podcast talking about how we train the pros was, was kind of interesting. I uh, threw up a simple self-test for your breathing, some lower cervical mechanics video as well. And then as of today, I threw up a video on power output and how you generate that from the inside out, as well as some terminology concepts that we'll touch on today in today's Q&A. If you haven't been on Instagram, please check out the Instagram, Bill Hartman PT on uh, Instagram. We've got a lot of topics that went up there, some short topics, a couple of Instagram TV videos, and of course your 16% videos as usual. So please check those out as well. Now let's dive into the Q&A. So our first question comes from Levi. Levi asks, how does the orientation of the pelvis influence movement options available at the ankle? I'm curious of your thoughts specifically to the context of speed skating where top performers express a high degree of ankle, ankle flexion. So one of the limitations that you're going to typically find is um, the inability to achieve the, the compressive propulsive strategy on the right. So many people are oriented such that the uh, they get left posterior uh, compression, right posterior expansion, when what this does is it actually positions the ankle on the, the right side, typically in more of a plantar flex position, which means that if I'm to achieve a propulsive uh, strategy in this right lower extremity, I have to be able to flip-flop this orientation. And so I have to achieve a right posterior compression, left posterior expansion, which would move me into a nutated position on the right and a counter-nutated position on the left. And that's how I make my left hand turn. This orients the pelvis to the left and it allows me to achieve the right dorsiflexion. This also allows me to achieve a very propulsive position in the right rear foot. So with, with skating especially, I need to achieve an everted position of the ankle so I can push off. Now, this cannot be an excessive amount of eversion or energy expenditure goes up for each stride. And so what we wanna make sure is, is that we can achieve this right posterior compressive strategy, this nutated strategy on the right side as I push off um, which will allow me to achieve an optimal position of eversion. Otherwise, if I can't achieve this, I may have to use an excessive amount of eversion in the rear foot, which increases my energy expenditure or will slow me down as I'm skating. So that's a really good question. And so um, oftentimes what we find is, is that the typical orientation of the pelvis to manage the internal forces is the exact opposite of what we need uh, for speed skating. So thank you, Levi. That's a really good question. So our next question comes from Artem, and Artem asks, when addressing elbow orientation via training, what's the deciding factor when choosing between an elbow flexion or extension-driven activity? A specific case would be someone that has an ER humerus and a pronated forearm. Well, clearly, the orientation at, at the elbow would be wanting to relatively internally rotate the humerus and supinate the forearm. But then the deciding factor is, am I going to do a push or a pull, essentially? And so this is going to be determined by um, some other measures that you need to attend to that will identify what 
is going on in the dorsal rostral space and whether we have an up or a down pump handle. So specifically, if we look at dorsal rostral expansion, um, that would be clarified by our ability to reach overhead in, in a normal shoulder flexion. So if I have normal shoulder flexion, then I have expansion in, in the dorsal rostral area. And so for me to reorient the elbow, um, I would want to use a, a propulsive activity, which would be more of a, an elbow extension driven activity. So we would say like a triceps uh, muscle activity with the appropriate orientation of the elbow. Now, if I wasn't able to achieve uh, full overhead reach or horizontal abduction, then I would know that the dorsal rostral space is actually closed and I would need to expand that. So in that case, I would use more of an elbow flexion driven activity. So we would typically associate that with a biceps curl and that would promote expansion of the dorsal rostral space and then promote reorientation proximally and, and then progressively distally. So we would get the dorsal rostral space in the appropriate position, the scapular or shoulder girdle in the appropriate position, and then the elbow in the appropriate position. So we have the appropriate sequence to restore normal variability at the elbow. Okay, our next question comes from Johnny. And Johnny has a, a two-parter here. So let's uh, address the first part. He says, hey, Bill, uh, you've touched on the fact that we really don't know why people feel better after interventions. It makes sense to me that even if interventions are specific, there are many things going on simultaneously. I was wondering if you could elaborate on this and, and possibly your own evolution in regard to this. It, it, I'm, I tend to be pretty straightforward on this. When we look at all the potential influences, we don't even know what those potential influences are. So there's a lot of um, unknowns and, and unknown unknowns and lots of influences. And so, so what we have to do is we have to take our representation of, of the entire system. So for me, that's movement. That's my proxy measure for the entire system. And so that's what I monitor or try to influence. The hope is, is that whatever element or whatever subsystem within the system is the limiting factor is also addressed by the interventions that I apply with the understanding that every sensory input is always an influence, um, every movement is always an influence, breathing is always an influence, and so we have to consider all of those elements to some degree, but I'm limited by my scope of practice. And so again, I have to use my proxy measure as a measurement of all systems that are, that are taking place. Like I said, you hope that with your intervention that you're addressing that, that subsystem or element of the system that is either too rigid to allow adaptation or you're able to promote a, a, another adaptation that can overcome that limitation and then restore whatever it is that we're trying to restore, whether it be movement or, or a uh, sub subjective perception that, that is why the patient comes to you. Typically, it's going to be pain un under my circumstance. And so that's kind of how I look at things. Um, and that's why I always say that I don't really know why they get better because, number one, I probably can't really identify as to um, why they had the problem in the first place. But my hope is that it's represented in the movement system because that's the system that I actually have the most influence on based on my scope of practice. So hopefully that answers your question for you. So let's go to the second half of Johnny's question. Uh, says, Bill, you recently shared a case on dorsal rostral expansion helping to improve a patient's height and corrected head forward posture. And although we aren't necessarily after improving static positions of posture, I'm wondering how expanding into the upper back would not result in more kyphosis and, and head forward posture. 
So to answer this question, we have to look at the compensatory strategies that occur sequentially um, from the bottom up of the, the thorax. And so each one of these compensatory strategies tends to be associated with an axillation strategy. And so what we had in this case was someone that was following a, a, a pre-written program that was designed to improve posture, which was heavily loaded with ITY exercises. And, and so um, the person in question was very, very compliant. And so over time, what they did is they actually achieved a position of extreme scapular retraction and, and elevation, which compressed the dorsal rostral space. And so this resulted in a very, very strong exhalation strategy in the dorsal rostral area, which if we do so, moves the thorax forward. And because these are, are compressive exhalation strategies, there is going to have to be some form of inhalation compensatory strategy that evolves. And so over time, if I compress the anterior thorax, so if I pull the pump handle down, I pull the manubrium down, and I compress the dorsal rostral space, I'm going to create a, a compensatory strategy in my, in my neck that keeps my airway open. But because I've compressed the dorsal rostral space, I'm also going to have to create some form of compensatory inhalation strategy in the thorax. And what people typically do is they pull their sternum downward with rectus abdominis, and they will flex forward at approximately the, the T7, T8 area because uh, the, the T7 area is actually where the, the lower angle of the, of the scapula rests. And so that's where the, the lower barrier of that compression is. So below that, there is space that can be accessed by, by flexing the spine forward. So from about T8 to T12, we do have some space in the lower posterior ribcage that we can use for inhalation. So that's typically what they do. But in doing so and flexing forward, they have to bring their head back up into what appears to be a traditional forward head posture. So the fix, if you will, if there is such a thing, is to create dorsal rostral expansion, restore normal pump handle, and then what happens is we get a normal expansion anterior posterior of the thorax, and the person actually gets taller, and then the head moves um, backward uh, over the shoulders into its normal resting posture. So that's why dorsal rostral expansion becomes so important. Um, I would also offer that when you're making decisions about how you're trying to influence positions, let your extremity motion drive your decision making in regard to um, how you're perceiving um, what is compressed and what is expanded rather than using a visual representation, especially in, in these types of cases. Because if you try to drive it through, through a visual representation, you end up making a lot of incorrect assumptions and then your exercise selection and intervention um, comes into question as to whether you're going to be successful or not. And that's basically what happened with this client where he was following a pre-programmed um, set of exercises that weren't designed for him and he ended up driving himself harder into his compensatory strategies resulting in the forward head in the first place. So our next question comes from Allison and Allison has some terminology questions to ask. And so she says, 
Uh, when you say the word orientation, are you saying it's relative to the spine? If so, why do you use the spine to establish orientation? So when we talk about orientation, orientation simply refers to position. And so we could talk about the, the pelvis as a unit becoming anteriorly oriented. So that would be a for, forwardly tip pelvis and it would just be relative to any other position of the pelvis. And the way we would identify anterior orientation would be its, its relative position to any number of measures. So it could be relative to the femur, it could be relative to the thorax. And so again, um, we're not talking about any specific point of reference as we can use any point of reference to describe things. So for instance, in normal respiration, I would say that the ilium is, is ER'd and the sacrum would be counter-nutated relative to, to the ilium. So again, we can, we can talk about orientations relative to, to any point um, or any frame of reference as long as we understand um, what we are describing. And so again, orientation is just simply a measure of position. So Allison goes on to ask, when you say inhaled versus exhaled, are you talking about the ribs of spine or just the spine? If both ribs and spine, then why is a narrow ISA inhaled if their lower ribs are in, a in an exhaled position? Well, first of all, the lower ribs are not in inhaled. So that's a compensatory strategy that we're talking about. So when we talk about the two archetypes, what we have is an axial skeleton that has exhaled with an inhalation strategy that would be described as a wide ISA that does not have full breathing capabilities, which would be indicated by a lack of extremity motion. And so, so again, the wide under this circumstance is an inhalation strategy that is compensatory against the, the mechanics of the axial skeleton, which is better designed to be an exhaled axial skeleton. The converse of that, of course, is the uh, inhaled axial skeleton, which would have a compensatory exhalation strategy, which is what you mentioned in your question, which would be the narrow ISA. But this is under the circumstances, again, somebody that does not have a full excursion of breathing from inhalation to exhalation. So when we talk about narrows and wides, we're talking about the compensatory breathing strategies. And, and so, in each case, the inhalation versus exhalation is describing the bias of respiration as both inhalation and exhalation are superimposed upon one another. So typically, by physical structure, people are biased towards being a better inhaler, a better exhaler, and then they would superimpose a compensatory strategy on top of that that would identify them as a wide or a narrow. So hopefully that answers that question for you. Our next question comes from Michelle. Uh, and Michelle says, I have heard the concept of tissue quality being discussed with many typical musculoskeletal diagnoses. Do we as physical therapists and fitness professionals have a good definition of what good tissue quality is related to this? Is there even a good way to subjectively or objectively measure tissue quality? Um, let me make this really, really simple by giving you a big fat no. There is no such thing nor is there a good definition of tissue quality under most normal circumstances where we're trying to palpate something through skin and adipose and, and clothing, et cetera, et cetera. So again, there is no measure of that. Um, so uh, there's no great subjective or objective way. Now, having said that, I do think that with practice, we can identify um, 
some vague representation of, of tension in the in the system. So if you were to, to concentrically orient your, your biceps muscle aggressively, you can tell that it gets more firm. And as you relax it, you can tell that it becomes more flaccid. So, so those would be some extremes. So if we can tell the difference there, then through practice, we may be able to identify a little bit of difference in regards to how much tension there is in the system. So, but we wouldn't be able to tell whether something is necessarily concentrically or eccentrically oriented what we might be able to tell is is there a difference is that difference favorable i think that that is determined by the outcome maybe based on subjective information from from your client or patient um, or maybe some identification of of sensitivity of that area perhaps but as far as trying to rate rate it or make some form of comparison um, there might be, like I said, with experience, some qualitative um, level of, of identification. I don't think it's very useful. I don't think most musculoskeletal diagnoses by name are very useful. So, Michelle, you've asked some really, really good questions here. Um, but I think that a lot of it is just, unfortunately, not very useful um, in, the, in what we do for a living. And so um, I would hope that uh, we can sort of throw that one out. Uh, along with any number of words like the C word, the F word, and the the N word. And so I'm talking about core, functional, and neutral. And so um, let's put tissue quality on that list as well. Why don't we go ahead and do that? So thanks, Michelle. Yeah. Our next question comes from Chris. And so Chris asks, what would you say are the biggest factors that impact somebody having an inhaled and, or an exhaled uh, skeleton? How much does a person's injury or training history come into play? And so, so Chris, um, you're either born a wide or you're born a narrow because it's all going to be structural in, in almost every case um, because we're all designed um, with, with certain angles. Our musculature is helically oriented. Our bodies are helically oriented. And so, so based on the angle of the helix of your, of your natural structure, that's going to determine your, your wide or narrow. Does training influence it? Absolutely. So if I am already uh, a, a wide ISA, I can certainly make myself wider through some form of training that increases my compressive strategy. So for instance, with powerlifting where where it's all about compression, it's all about exhalation strategies. I can use my superficial musculature to compress my my uh, pelvis and thorax even more and make me seem even wider. If I was a narrow and I undertook those same activities, I might be able to achieve some measure of compressive strategy that might make me look a little bit more wide because I am going to create some, some measure of compression, but chances are, um, never going to be as wide as somebody that is born with a wide ISA. Um, so again, this tends to be structural. Any activity, any activity that requires a strong exhalation strategy or compressive strategy is ultimately going to result in an anterior-posterior compression of the thorax. So again, that how much it, it can influence the, the general appearance, I don't know. We'd have to measure somebody or we'd have to identify what activities they're doing that might result in, in such compressive strategy. So hopefully that, that sheds a little bit of light on that topic for you there, Chris. So next question comes from Alex. And Alex says, been loving the content you're putting out there. Well, thank you, Alex. And his question is about volleyball players. And Alex says, I work with some volleyball players and I'm trying to work on their squat using the box squat. So um, love the box squat, talk about it a lot. Um, given that they do not get much lower than a quarter squat when they jump in their sport, 
what depth should I focus on in getting them to? Is it 90 degrees, just above 90 degrees, or should the goal be to get 120 degrees? So this brings up this whole, you know, health versus performance kind of a thing. And so, so Alex, I think you're going to have to decide as to what element of, of movement or position or performance that you're actually trying to chase um, and, and, and where you need to place your emphasis. And so, again, do I have somebody that, that maybe needs a, a fuller excursion of hip range of motion? So, you know, you, you mentioned some in, in a second part of your question that, that you, know, you have a back row player that might have to, to squat a little bit deeper. But I would also offer that you've got, you've got front row players that are going to have to change direction. They're going to have to move from side to side. So again, how much mo motion do they need? And then I also have to consider, it's like, well, do I really want to restrict the, the movement that much? and then maybe compromise an element of health. So again, do you need to keep these players healthier? Are you chasing an element of performance based on a key performance indicator? So I think that you make that decision. You say, well, if my key performance indicator is, is X, then what strategy best provides me the ability to, to achieve X? And I think that's where you make your decision. Based on the way that you ask the question, I think you already have an idea of, of what you're doing here. And, and so I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I think that it's a matter of, of determining what your key performance indicator is, what element of performance that you're, you're trying to chase, and then you, you superimpose the strategy on top of that. So that's a really good question, Alex. Thanks for asking. Last question comes from Gregory. And I know Greg, so... Um, he throws in longtime listener, first time caller. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. Um, and he's got some ISA questions here. And so he makes reference to the how to measure the infrastructural angle video on YouTube. Um, and he says, I got the interpretation that wide ISA is indicated by an opening or an increase in the, in the infrastructural angle with inhalation without a legitimate closing uh, with exhalation and that a narrow ISA is indicated by a lack of opening with inhalation. And, and I would say, Greg, I think you, you've got a really good understanding of that. That is, that is relatively correct. So again, based on the way that we test it, and if you, if you go to that video on YouTube, you'll see, see how I do it because um, I do bias people um, towards an, an inhalation strategy to help me identify whether they can close a wide or op open the narrow. Um, so, Greg, you're on it on that. Now, Greg goes on. Does the resting measure of the ISA give us any useful information? And if so, uh, what does it tell us and, and has a guide intervention? Um, I'll give you a big fat maybe on that. What I'm looking for is a, is a dynamic ISA. I want one that opens and closes enough enough that allows me to restore extremity ranges of motion and, and uh, movement through the axial skeleton. And so there might be a circumstance where I might um, have to use a, a static position of the infrastructural angle. So if I have some sort of extremity involvement in a, in a patient that, that has pain and I need to make an estimation as to what I might be looking at from a compensatory strategy standpoint, then I might use the, the, the static position. Um, ISAs are, are generally based on structure. Um, so, so maybe you could pull some information from that as to someone's basic structure. Would they be biased towards an inhalation compensatory strategy or an exhalation compensatory strategy based on whether they are they're wide or narrow? But under the circumstances, my goal is to, re to reestablish the dynamic infrastructure angle as a representation of the ability to take a breath in and a breath out. Um, so again, it's like, you know, if, if static gives you information that's useful, then I'm okay with you using that. 
Uh, Greg continues, does the outcome of the infrasternal angle test affect the prescribed exhalation or inhalation strategy uh, used during prescribed interventions? Yes. So let me, let me try to talk you through this a little bit. So when I have a compensatory strategy for inhalation, which would be the wide ISA superimposed on, a, on an exhaled axial skeleton, so what I have is an eccentric orientation, especially of the external oblique, which allows that ISA to open and the diaphragm to descend. And so um, if I have to overcome that compensatory strategy, I have to teach people to exhale more effectively, then I need to recruit those muscles that would close that ISA, which is the external oblique, which are the most superficial. And therefore, I need a bit of bit more of an, of an aggressive exhalation strategy. And so um, what I would, would do is say it's a little bit more purse-lipped, it's a little bit more higher force and a little bit more of a higher pressure strategy. So one of the things that, that I encourage people to do under those circumstances is make sure that I can hear them exhale um, as they're, they're moving through their, their prescribed uh, interventions if breathing is associated with that. Um, on the other side of the coin, where I have somebody that would be an inhaled axial skeleton with a compensatory exhalation strategy, which would be your narrows, they're already recruit, recruiting the superficial musculature to close that ISA. Now, I still need to teach this person how to exhale, but if I teach them the same strategy that I used with a wide, all I'm gonna do is keep that, that ISA uh, closed. What I'm looking for um, is the ability to prevent the trapping of of air in the lungs. So when we have a narrow ISA with limited breathing excursion, they exhale so aggressively, they actually trap a lot of air um, in, in the lung because the pressure ramps up so quickly during the exhalation um, that they can't get the air out in time. So what we teach under those circumstances is a little bit more, more relaxed, open mouth, sort of a, a sigh for an exhale. Um, typically what I would cue people to do is, is to exhale as if they were trying to, to fog up the world's biggest window with their breath. So when you were a kid and you would fog up the window and make a little smiley face or whatever you do, um, we would use that as a frame of reference for that type of an exhalation strategy. Because again, I don't wanna ramp up the pressure so quickly inside the thorax. And so it becomes more of a sort of a, a sigh type of an exhale for, you, for your narrows. So, so that's a really good question and, and very, very useful. So it turns out that Greg has another part to his question. So this is part three. Greg must be really, really special. And he is. I know who Greg is. Um, so, so Greg wants to know, um, what do you do when the ISA is dynamic on one side or it tests out as wide on one side and narrow on the other? Quite simply, you're performing an asymmetrical intervention. So, so the two sides... Um, of, the, of the thorax in this case are behaving differently because chances are they're creating a turning strategy to help manage some of the internal forces or external forces that they're dealing with. So, so the, the simple answer is I treat the wide side like a wide, I treat the narrow side like a narrow. So in many cases, we just perform an asymmetrical activity that, that flip-flops that strategy. So we will compress where they're expanded and expand where they're compressed to get them to turn in the opposite direction. And in doing so, we restore dynamics to both sides at the same time. So that's a really good question because a lot of people don't understand that. So Greg is extra special, so he gets a fourth part. 
to his ISA question, and it goes as such. If someone measures with an ISA of 60 degrees at rest, and it widens, but it doesn't completely close, is this person considered a wide ISA? Under most circumstances, a 60 degree ISA measure would probably uh, indicate that someone is, is a narrow. Um, if, if they take a breath in, um, especially the way I perform the ISA test, and it doesn't close all the way. I'm gonna guess that it didn't open all that much to begin with. It would be pretty extreme. Um, if they could open it um, somewhere in the general vicinity going from 60 to 120, you might have full respiratory excursion there. So so again, I think it's gonna come out to, to be determined um, based on the extremity test more than anything else there, Greg, because Again, a 60 degree angle would be a fairly narrow representation of an ISA at rest. And, and again, while I'm looking for the dynamics, um, I think that it would probably bias my thinking that this is actually somebody that has an inhaled axial skeleton with a uh, compensatory exhalation strategy if they do not have full breathing excursion. So um, when in doubt, my strategy is to do something. So we intervene based on our best estimation because we're always treating on probabilities anyway. And then we just see what the result is. And so if we get a favorable result, we can do more of that. And if we don't get a favorable result, um, we do less of that. So ultimately, um, we don't really know the the exactness of all of these these tests. We're using it to create a representation in our mind of, of our, our best probability of what's going on, and then we intervene as such. So don't fear being right or wrong. As long as we're doing safe-to-fail experiments, we're not putting anybody in, in harm's way um, by doing so. So um, again, don't be afraid to be wrong. Um, measure as accurate, accurately as you can, be reliable with yourself. And that's ultimately how, how you're going to, to, to do this type of work. So again, I don't think I'd worry so much about whether, whether we would brand somebody in this situation as a wide or a narrow. I would just probably measure, make my best estimate, intervene and see what happens. So that wraps up this week's Q&A. So enjoy the rest of your neural coffee. I will enjoy mine. Um, we got a bunch of questions that are left over from this week's Q&A, so I'll probably spread those out during the week. Also of note, um, got a bunch of applications for the intensive, so we had a record um, number of applications within less than 48 hours, so I had to shut it down because I'm already overwhelmed with, with the number of applications. Normally it takes about a week to get even close to this many, and we did it in 48 hours, so I appreciate your interest in, in the intensive. Um, for those of you that that don't get selected from, from this round, keep trying. I can only take eight at a time to keep this thing as, as powerful as it is. So again, I appreciate your interest. Um, keep watching the videos, keep commenting, and keep asking questions. Ask Bill Hartman at gmail.com, and I'll answer as many of those as I can.